but if he did exist, he'd think he was a monster, a mean-minded, capricious beast of some sort, is not the God of the Bible. He's describing some sort of aloof God, isn't he? Sort of looking down on the world while things are all horrible and going wrong and not doing anything about it and expecting thanks and praise for it. Look, I don't believe in a God like that either, do you? But it raises something really important for us, I think. Um, something that we do need to think about and respond to as Christians. Because when we hear someone say that they believe in God or they don't believe in God, very easy to assume that we understand what they mean straight away. And we think, oh no, what am I going to do? I want this person to know Jesus. I want them to come to know God for themselves. But they don't even believe he's real. They don't even believe he exists. We don't always stop to ask, what does my friend or my neighbour or this famous person think God is like? What is it that they're rejecting? What is it they don't know about? Now, I know, of course, that to, to be an atheist technically means to not believe in any gods at all, doesn't it? That's what atheist means. To be a real atheist means to operate on the basis that there is no supernatural being or beings at all. That all there is is you know, the material world and science and what we can see and feel. But even most atheists, it seems, do have some assumptions about what God would be like if he did exist. Now, Stephen Fry, certainly, he's very cross with God, isn't he, for someone who doesn't think he's real. And I don't think he's that unusual. Not that everyone maybe is as angry as that. But I think it's quite rare to find someone who is a, a thoroughgoing atheist in what they think. And that gives us a starting point, a starting point for our thinking. I think a starting point for engaging with those we know, our friends and our, our family members and others in our world as well. If to be an atheist means to have rejected God, then what is this God like who you are rejecting? That's one thing. I also want to say, though, as we begin this evening, that I think there's a question which goes even further than that, because it's not just atheists who sometimes have skewed ideas about God. It can be Christians as well. Um, to be a Christian, of course, among other things, means to be someone who is a worshipper of God. Uh, it's about knowing and trusting the Lord. But it can be very easy for us to, you know, to bring our own ideas of what God must be like and to start from there and to end up carrying a whole load of assumptions about him. If I said to you, uh, what is God like? You might say, God is love. You might say, God is powerful. You might say, God is holy or whatever, and a whole bunch of things, and then to assume that having imagined what these things are that God is like, the God of the Bible then fits into that framework of how we would describe God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that everything we think we know about God is wrong or anything like that. He is love. He is powerful. He is holy. Uh, but what I am saying is that he is not defined by our ideas of what a God should be, our assumptions of what he might be like, it's the other way round. It is God who defines who God is. If we want to know what love looks like, we need to look at God, not the other way round, or power, or holiness, or anything else. Sometimes it will mean learning things about him that we just never thought of before. Sometimes it might mean rearranging our assumptions that we thought we had. God defines himself, we just get to meet him. And we get the privilege of being invited into his family so that we might know him. Um, how does God define himself? Well, we might start off by saying that he, that, um, he is a trinity, a father, the son, 
and the Holy Spirit. But we can go further than that, can't we? In the Bible, he uses all kinds of different names for himself, most of which carry quite a lot of significance. Uh, We might say he reveals who he is by what he says, but also by what he does. And from all of these things, we can start to talk about his character and his attributes and get a sense of who the Lord is. Not just some God who we imagine, but the God who's shown himself to us. That's going to be our focus this term, when I say we're going to be thinking about God this term. We're going to take a a slightly different approach at these 6.30pm services. We'll be coming to the Bible every week to hear from it, but rather than work our way through one book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, as we normally do, and rightly so, uh, we're going to look at some different parts of the Bible, and each week think about one particular characteristic of who God is and what he is like. We'll think about what it means for God to be creator, for God to be unchanging, for God to be light, But we're going to start off this evening just thinking about that first thing that Stephen Fry was talking about, although he was rejecting it. The idea that God simply exists. He is real. So let's turn to our Bibles. We're going to turn to the Psalms this evening and start in Psalm 14. And Greg is going to come and read that to us. This evening's reading is Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. A fool in his heart says there is no God. Um, In fact, the first few psalms in the book of Psalms are pretty unsparing in the way they describe the human race. Uh, And one of the key themes throughout the psalms is the theme of wisdom and uh, what it means to live wisely. And of course, what's the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness or folly uh, is the one without wisdom. If someone with wisdom is wise, then someone without wisdom is a fool. Uh, The fool in his heart says there is no God. Now, when we speak about our hearts, we normally mean our emotions, don't we? We sometimes talk about head and heart, you know, as if the head is where our kind of rational thinking goes on and the heart is where our emotions come from. I mean, that's just a a way of expressing it. It's not our heart is really where the blood is pumped around our body. It's doing something else, isn't it? Uh, In the ancient world, the heart didn't mean, didn't represent the same thing as it does today. In in ancient Israel, when someone talked about what was in the heart, it was more the place where the will is found. The emotions are in the stomach in the ancient world. Uh, But it's the will that comes from the heart. So when the psalmist writes that opening line, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. uh, He's saying the fool is someone who decides to live as though God does not exist. It's an act of the will, not just a response of the emotions. The fool is someone who decides to live as though God does not exist. And so he says there in those opening verses, 
Uh, he or she is corrupt. Their deeds are vile. Whether or not this fool might call himself an atheist or not, maybe he would, but perhaps not. The point is that in practice, he's living like an atheist. Functionally, he is an atheist. His will is that God should have no place in his life. It's not God who gets to tell me what to do. That's what this fool says. So it's possible that he even goes to church. He might turn up and sing the hymns and say all the words. But, you know, when it comes to life, when it comes to decisions, to money, to family, to relationships, to morals, uh, well, he will decide what is best for him or for her. Thank you very much indeed. For all practical purposes, he's, he's working as if there is no God, no God whose voice can be heard at least. Now, look, later on in the psalm, the writer speaks of where God is to be found. Verse 5, he's found in the company of the righteous, because verse 6, he is their refuge. But before we jump too quickly to those, I'll return to them, I want us just to feel the force of those opening verses a little bit, as a challenge to us, as well as to those outside the church, because it's very easy to read a psalm like this, isn't it, and think, oh, it's about them. What fools! They say in their hearts, there is no God. Well, we may not be atheists, but can we be tempted sometimes to live as though we were? Are we willing to be guided by the Lord in all that we do? Or are there parts of our our lives where actually we prefer not to have any interference from him? Thank you very much. The first thing the Bible teaches us about God is that he is real. I know it sounds obvious, but we need to name it. God exists, and that means he is there. That's the starting point for taking him seriously. I remember when I was a student, I might even be when I was in the sixth form, reading, anyone remember Francis Schaeffer in his books? Christian Apologetics, one or two, possibly. And one of, one of his titles was The God Who Is There. His point is that you know God is not just an idea. He is real, and it makes a difference. And if he is there, the psalmist is saying, then the only wise way to live is by starting with him, taking his reality and presence seriously. The alternative is foolishness. What does that look like? Where does atheism lead? What happens when people, whether religious or not, choose to live as though God doesn't exist? Well, actually, we saw some of this in our morning services in the spring last year when we looked at the first half of the book of Romans. In fact, if you want to flick back Uh, or rather forward from the Psalms, keeping a a thumb in Psalm 14 to Romans chapter 1. I think it's page 1128. And just have a look at that again. Um, In fact, in Romans 3, Paul quotes from Psalm 14, these words that we've just read. uh, And he uses it as his example as he concludes that there is uh, no one who does what is right. They're all corrupt. Psalm 14, verse 3. But before that, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Romans 1, 18 to 20. The point is, you can't prove that God exists, like you can prove that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 
You can't do a mathematical proof of God. The Bible never tries to prove him in that sense. It's that when we try to live as though he's either not real or not relevant, that we get ourselves into all sorts of problems. What does that look like? You know, on a big scale, we might think of what happened in the 20th century with great atheist regimes in places like Germany or Russia or China, Cambodia. We might think of the questions that an absence of God leaves us struggling with. You know, I know that Stephen Fry asks us a difficult question, doesn't he? Where does all this suffering come from? And I don't want to brush that question away. I'm not going to try and answer it tonight. That's a different question, an important one. And it's a hard one for Christians. And we mustn't pretend that we've got easy answers to it. But you know what? What he doesn't say is that if you're an atheist, there are some even more difficult questions. Um, Where does beauty come from? Are you really telling me that, you know, as we stand and look out this morning and then there's all the frost over the hills to the south of Thurnby and the sun is glinting off it and there's all kinds of different colours in the sky. The atheist has to tell me that's you know, it's just chemicals, it's just random, it's completely meaningless, there's nothing to it. And how do you explain love if there is no God? You know, it's, it's of no significance whatsoever. Um, what do you do about the sense that we all have that there is such a thing as evil? You know, that we have consciences And sometimes they're skewed and we don't get it right, but we do know, don't we, that there are some things which are right and some things which are wrong, even though we may struggle to work out what they are sometimes. Denying the existence of God might solve, might make something seem easier, but it does raise a whole bunch of different problems for us. When we treat God as not real or not relevant, we get into all kinds of problems uh, because he has revealed himself. To live... As if God has not spoken, is functionally atheist, even if we carry on worshipping God. And the Bible's view, as we find here in Romans 1, is that the foolish choice to live without God is not about the evidence. Do you notice that? It's about the attitude. It's about sin. That's what he says. It's not that God hasn't revealed himself clearly enough. Paul really lays it on thick, doesn't he? It's that we don't want to listen to him. Why don't people believe in God? Verse 18 says, because they suppress the truth. And as Paul says in the next couple of verses, the evidence for God is there in plain sight, in all that he has made. His power, his nature, his reality, it can be seen unless we don't want to see it. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse, verse 20. And the rest of the chapter in Romans 1 is a litany of the disastrous results that happen when people decide to live as if God's voice doesn't count, as if there is in practice no God. And whether that's being an absolute atheist or whether it's just kind of seeing God as some kind of distant figure who we don't need to pay too much attention to because he's not going to do anything. The reality of God, that's where we start from. That's the foundation stone of our faith. He is real. He has revealed himself and the character of who he is is evident in what he's done and what he's made Um, Andrew Wilson says his character can be seen in morality in miracles in mercy and in mountains I like that all those different kinds of things reveal God through what he's made and through what he's done God's existence is displayed and only the fool 
dismisses it. God exists. Let me finish with one more thing about God's existence. Um, And this is by way of encouragement, because I think we need to hear it. And uh, we will have uh, more on this in the weeks to come. It would be a real mistake to have all this talk about God and not to say something about Christmas and everything that comes after Christmas. Because while God has left a witness to who he is in his creation, as Paul writes there in Romans, as the psalmist alludes to, he doesn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He didn't make the world, set it running, and then stand back and just leave it to see what happened. He's not aloof when there is suffering, just looking on from afar. The Bible tells us that the world is not the way God intended it to be. Human sin harms the earth in many ways. In some mysterious sense, the whole creation is in bondage to decay. That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. And God's response to this is to step into the world himself, isn't it? Into the creation that that he made to share in its suffering. He's not what Stephen Fry says, is he? He's not up there leaving us to live in this broken world, expecting us to be on our knees thanking him in the midst of all that is going wrong. He's down here. He's being born. He's growing up. He's living. He's being rejected. He's dying on a cross. That is a God worth believing in. I don't want to believe in Stephen Fry's God, the one that he doesn't believe in. Thankfully, that isn't the God of the Bible. Uh, Finally, you don't need to turn to this one, but um, I imagine many of you will remember the, the account on Resurrection Day of when Thomas met Jesus for the first time. The very famous story, isn't it? The most famous doubter in history. He wasn't there when Jesus had previously appeared to the disciples. And Thomas wants some evidence before he will believe. And the evidence he wants to see is the scars, isn't it? He says to Jesus, you know, I want to feel the nail marks in your hands. I want to feel and see where the spear went into your side. He wants to see the proof that the man standing before him is the one who hung on the cross and died so that he can believe that he's not only died, but gone through death, defeated it and come out the other side. And Jesus says to Thomas, those famous words, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to say that's why we need to know God and know him as well as we can. That is a God who we can believe in, isn't it? And when I say uh, believe in, I don't just mean a believe that he's real, but a God that we can believe in, trusting with our lives. The kind of God who steps into our world to be with us when life is confusing and hard. Only the God of the cross can make sense of a suffering world. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, said it's only possible to believe in a good God in a suffering world because of the cross. Because Jesus is the God who suffered too to bring us life and hope. And we can trust him with our lives, with our decisions, with our struggles, with the people we care about, even when we can't understand things fully. Because of Jesus, who makes us righteous, we can know the God who is there. And finishing back in Psalm 14 once again, because of Jesus... Uh, We read that God is present in the company of the righteous, verse 5, 
and be assured that he is with us, not because we are wonderful and good or better than anyone else, but because he has made us righteous. Whatever the evil and foolish may do or say, verse 6, the Lord is our refuge. So my prayer for the next few weeks, as we look at some different aspects of God's character and of what he has said and done, is that it will once again remind us that he is a God worth believing in, a God worth trusting, a God we can bring our lives to and know that he will receive us. Let's just pray and be quiet for a moment or two, then Tom's going to come and lead us. Before I, I lead us in a prayer, just going to leave a moment or two of quiet to reflect. Um, I spoke earlier on about atheism. I don't think there are many atheists in church tonight. But we will each know where there are bits of our lives where we, we often like to live as if God wasn't there. Perhaps there's something in what he said that we don't want to listen to. Perhaps there's just areas where we want to make our own calls and it's uncomfortable to, to, to sense that, that he is really sovereign there too. So just in the quiet, what is it that you would like to bring to the Lord? Whether that's in repentance or as a cry for help uh, and, and asking for his presence. Let us pray. Our Father God, we, we thank you that you are present in the company of the righteous. That with your people down through the ages, we too can say, the Lord is our refuge. Forgive us for those times when we try to live as though you are not God. And help us to trust you with each part of our lives, more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.